dear listener, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Metacast Crypto Corners. I'm your host, Nicola Vreke, or Nico for short, and today I'm joined by Sebastian Park, Anton Bakman, and Khaled Al-Rumi. And today we're talking about blockchain games and high-level competitive gameplay. But before we kick off our discussion, um, who do we have on the call today? Who's here with us? Let's uh, do a quick round of intros. Khaled, you can start. Yeah, sure. Hello, everyone. So I've been working on mobile games ever like for around nine to 10 years, you know, the free to play space. Uh, and I just jumped into the bandwagon of uh, crypto and blockchain gaming. And I'm currently working at Illuvium as a game designer. And, you know, it's like I think it couldn't look uh, any better, you know, for for to be working in games now, I think. Mm -hmm. I agree, man. Anton. Hey, th thanks, Nico, for having us. Uh, uh, quickly on me, so I'm, I'm a principal at Play Ventures, uh, also a co-lead of our our new new fund called Play Future Fund, which is focused at the intersection of, of gaming and crypto. Initially joined Play Ventures in early 2019 to focus as a venture partner to focus on their their first blockchain gaming investments, and now obviously ramping up ramping up our efforts quite a lot in the space. Uh, lifelong competitive gamer, spent a good time playing arenas in World of Warcraft back in the day. Uh, but awesome to awesome to tackle this this subject today. Nice. And then finally, Sebastian. Yeah, hey, it's my name Sebastian, Seth Park on Twitter. I am a venture partner at Bitcraft. I'm also the co-founder of Infinite Canvas. But in a prior life, I was a VP of esports for the Houston Rockets, where I created Clutch Gaming, which is now part of Dignitas, and ran a team called Team Archon, which was a competitive Hearthstone Dota 2 team back in the early 2010s as well. Good times, man. Oh, I, lo I loved Hearthstone. For a bit, uh, you know, I should have brought my Hearthstone mug, and I, I, it's, it's in the wash, unfortunately. And now you're drinking from your Dota mug. I like it. All right, mm -hmm. cool. So this discussion, so basically, the goal of this discussion is to talk about, okay, uh, you have this NFT thing. Um, how does this work when you have high-level competitive gameplay? Um, and so, you know, if you look at the biggest esports today. Um, for example, like I'm, I'm big. I'm, I'm a big fan of two types of esports. So one is CS:GO, and two is League of Legends. And there, you could say like, oh, it's very easy to have NFTs. They're just cosmetic NFTs. It doesn't impact gameplay, and so there, it integrates easily. But my question is, okay, what if we have um, a game that has NFTs that are one non-cosmetic, so they have utility, where one um, NFT is stronger than another NFT, and they're also limited in supply, um, which would, you know make things more complex. And so the inspiration for this was actually a piece that was written by Khaled um, that is called um, Play to Earn from a Dis Systems Design Lens. And it was published under the iron source medium.com. And so there he talked about, you know, um, NFTs um, within games and how that could actually work from a, a competitive balance point of view. Um, so maybe you can you can share your initial thoughts around this and, and what inspired you, you know, to write about this uh, in the first place. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So like the, the, the reason why I wrote about this, which was like, I'm not a big fan of NFTs that are cosmetics or ones like that only provide extra yield, you know? I'm not a big fan mm. of those because inherently what when we are introducing NFTs, I would like them to influence the gameplay mechanics. You know, I wouldn't want something that is just tacked on. So th that was the main reason why I wrote this. And, and you know, uh, inherently, whenever I say that I want an NFT that has a, a, a specific functionality in the game, the first thing that would come to mind is like this would might be a pay to win thing. Mm -hmm. And and my 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 thing was that okay if you look at the real life sports you know like football and things like this would you consider like Messi to be like a pay to win, uh, you know 
if you have, if you bought him and then you put I him know. in your team, you know, it is yeah. yeah. So so I'm looking at it that way. So so my my theory is is that if we look at the real life football, you know, or or any other sport, why not we could make something similar in terms of NFT space. So this is like the the thesis that I'm building on. Okay, so you're yeah. you're saying because um, you know people now buy teams of very good players, um, and that causes or, or results in a thriving you know esports or sports scene or competitive scene. Um, you're saying that this should also be possible with you know limited numbers of NFTs, where you have like the highest tier that only a few teams are able to purchase because of the high price. Exactly. So something like that. But in order to to, to make that model work, you need to take like I wouldn't say all aspects, but most aspects. So I, I I wouldn't want to have an NFT that has an infinite useful life, basically. No, no, let's put a cap, let's say, where it's like you could play this NFT for let's say a month or so or or a season and then it would just decay off. You know, that would even change the meta and how it's going on, you know, and then you need to make some some good decision to is this worth buying? Maybe this NFT is at the end of its useful life. You know, I think it would like like create a lot of interesting things in the esport ecosystem. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Let's let's put that on pause because I think that's that's an interesting you know trail of thought we can we can perhaps follow. But maybe let's let the others talk about this. So Anton, you, uh, what are your thoughts? You know, initially going back to the beginning, you're talking you know limited supply of functional NFTs and balanced gameplay. What do you think around that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, initially. Um, I think there are already games out there that where where you don't start you don't start out as you know on an equal board or equal playing board if you will. I mean, if you look at CCG such as Hearthstone, for example, as we as we just discussed, I mean, there's an upfront investment that you need to make in every season to to remain competitive, and it seems it seems totally fine also also for that audience. Um, I think looking at especially in the West when we think about esports, I think we easily um, think about these very skill-based games, as you mentioned, we think about CSGO, we're thinking about League of Legends. Uh, but, but I think we have to remember that there's, a, especially if we look into uh, LATAM, Southeast Asia, and the broader Asian market, we have a large uh, mobile esports scene as well. And, and some of those titles are actually the biggest ones also in the region. And um, I mean, even even in the, in, in the Western markets, we can see how big, for, for example, the clan wars in Clash of Clans can be and how competitive the gameplay also can be. Uh, in those kinds of games where there is a kind of heavy progression-based monetization also also in place. So I think we need to zoom out a bit and see what also what already works and where these kinds of components are, are already okay. I also like to tie some uh, uh, some connection into traditional sports as well, where where it, it, I mean, it's all about how the audience perceives the sport and how how, how acceptable they are against it. So as, as a Finn, I obviously like Formula One. Uh, and um, there, I think, is largely accepted that we have one or two constructor, constructors that are really competitive. And we really like to see those, the best ones, really battle it out with the best cars that are out there. Because um, I think there's there's a lot more than only the sport itself or the racing itself that makes it so interesting people. It's a lot about kind of the world building around the characters, uh, about their respective rivalries, all the stories around that. and. Okay, I, th I think many of us have seen the the Drive to Survive series on Netflix, which has really supercharged that kind of world around it. And I think when it comes to what NFTs and crypto broadly allows for a lot, what we've seen in kind of the early days now in gaming is is kind of wider participation from from the movements from the whole movement around that game. 
And I think I think that's a big part of what this can be, bring to esports as well is really kind of aligning the incentives, if you will, and kind of making making the fans and the followers a lot more vested into what's happening in esports as well. And I think that's that's a big part of of how it can change things. Mm-hmm. Sebastian, what do you what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite topics in the world, right? Like, it's certainly the intersection of everything I've done with my career. <laughs> so, w- one thing I'll, I'll set a couple like a priori constraints that I think are sort of interesting to frame the conversation. We can jump in from there. I mean, the first thing is Anton's completely correct. F one is such a different ecosystem than, for example, American football, right, or American baseball. One one of the funniest things that you see in uh, sports is that America builds itself as this incredibly capitalistic country, while its sports are socialists. And if you look at Europe, Europe, a lot of European countries build themselves as socialistic, um, you know, helpful countries, but all their sports are incredibly capitalistic in terms of you know relegation and some of those systems. And so I think for first and foremost, like that's the sports analogy is a fun one. And it's a question of it does it become play, uh, pay to win? Can you have a competitive environment? Uh, you know, there are two examples there that I think are sort of interesting. Certainly uh, in talking to the Axie guys, um, for you guys certainly know this, but in case you don't, uh, if you have two of the exact same axes, the speed tie, the, the, uh, the quote-unquote axis that goes first, is the older axis. And mm. so that type of non-fungibility is interesting from a game design perspective, but probably detrimental to high-level competitive. So I think if you think about Hearthstone, because in theory, uh, they're, they're non-fungible in terms of their their cards themselves right and they're like oh like if you have the using the Yu-Gi-Oh example if you have two blue eyes white dragons or three blue eyes white dragons the fourth one can be used in the same manner as the other three even if there are only four available so in theory they're still non-fungible but in practice they're fungible or they're they're usable in between each other right they're they're interdispersible whereas in Axie especially at the higher parts of the ladder uh, that starts to fall apart, right? Because there are axes that are going to be strictly better because you have axie one and your opponent has axie two, your axie one will always have priority. Mm. And so like that's a huge um, tactical strategic advantage there. Um, so I think that's one part of the game design constraint that's interesting. But the other thing that I think is sort of a deeper part of this question and what I'd love to hear from Khaled about as well is just, uh, just the sheer number of players you need to support this type of system. And whether or not we have enough of those people, especially in these designs. One of the concerns I think I've seen from people in the competitive gaming community is that if you do have restraints, you do limit the number of people who can compete. So the Clash of Clans, competitive clans war scene, which hilariously, if you guys know Bryce Blum, the esports lawyer, his his like twin brother is a well, I think just took first or second at U.S. Nationals in that game. But you're right, that's a huge cost investment. But as a result, the scene is smaller. Right, and so I just wanted to like abstract it back and say, hey, actually, as a function of the type of ecosystem you want, if it's more like F1, you'll only have you know, 20, 100, 200 people competing at any given time in that entire ecosystem versus a scene like you, like, like Nico, like in Counter-Strike, where you do have you know, your millions of DAUs, all with some esports competitive ambition. And so this is a long, really long-winded way of saying, uh, I, I do wonder, especially what type of game genre we're trying to approach the esports angle from, and more importantly, given that game genre, it matters or doesn't matter whether or not it's pay to win or not. Um, games like Hearthstone, no one cares it's pay to win. Games like F1, no one cares it's um, pay to win. In part because the audiences are smaller at the competitive level than the casual level. But if you have a game, for example, like um, uh, European football or soccer, um, as my American colleagues will call it, <laughs> uh, the 
like suddenly like the idea, the entire culture of that sport is far closer to ease of accessibility across the nations. And as a result, it's the biggest sport in the world because there's such good access to the sport. And, and that the biggest sport in the world is not, for example, F1, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the kids here down the street, they can, you know, play the game of football with the same limitations as the pros do, basically. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and it's interesting because, like, for example, um, at all levels, I've been spending a little doing a deep dive in um, racing recently with um, some of my colleagues in the, uh, who are from F1 and from the FIA. And what's interesting there is that even spec-based racing, so the idea that everyone's going to have the exact same car and cart in racing is a rigged game in that world because all engines have small deltas in terms of their mm. like tolerances for building and so the biggest and most competitive people uh, actually buy like a hundred engines and then they take the they test all hundred they take the best one for their child and they sell the other 99 which is again why like you you have to have so much respect for people like lewis hamilton or or um Oh man, why, uh, uh, Michael Schumacher, like the guys and gals who've coming up from no resources, because what they did is insanely hard to do in that sport. Um, and so, similarly to to um, to Axie and some of these and these futurized blockchain games, uh, the question is like, hey, are we like what type of ecosystem are we trying to achieve? Because the F one ecosystem is actually a really easy one to market and really easy one to like talk about, uh, but it's it has those negative externalities if you consider that a negative externality. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, Khaled, so you, you've been thinking about this a lot, given with, with Sebastian, how, how he framed it. Um, like, what time, types of games um, do you think will have you know, the most thriving um, and also, like, I, I would say, broad, um, broad success you know, competitive scene? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, currently, like, if, if, you look at, if you look at it, I don't think that there is a game that, like, ticks all the boxes when it comes to, you know, including NFTs that, that could uh, influence the power in the game. I, I don't think we mm -hmm. have something that, that is as close to an example, but like the closest thing would be probably a racing game, you know, even though like I'm, I'm not sure how, how that would work in the esports the e scene, but like a racing game where, where there you have a car and you have, you know, uh, a driver. So basically you have a, a skill and you have an NFT and, and you know, you need to hit that mm -hmm. sweet spot between the two. You know to make it work uh, and i would add on top of that is that if, if you crush the car for example it would be total then it's gone you know so i i think some we need something like that where it's not like stale you just buy the the, the most powerful thing out there and then that's it is just smooth sailing from now on no no i don't like that and i don't think it will work so on, <laughs> on top of that like i i think also uh i would stay away from depending on like a vertical progression as a term to be competitive, I would go for a horizontal uh, expansion. So like something like Clash of Clans, where it's like you just progress vertically, you know, improving your town hall mm -hmm. or whatever. I don't think that's a good setup. You would want something that is horizontal. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you know, have like this, this gatekeeping from, from uh, players not being able to at least get a sense of, what's going on or just, you know, uh, contribute to, 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 to the esports scene or, you know, play the game at that skill level. Uh, so, yeah, like... Could you could you give give some examples around, like, what you mean with the, the horizontal? Exactly. So, yeah, so League of Legends is something where the content is laid out horizontally. So you have a lot of champions that are just scaling horizontally. Mm. But something like Clash of Clans mm. is something vertical, where it's just like 
the higher the town hall, the more content there is, the more utility there is. You know, so this is like a good example, I think, to where it should be, something like that. Anton, your thoughts here? I think if we look at kind of where where are we nearest in terms of adoption, where it could work initially. Uh, and if if um, if we look at the spectrum of, of, of games that utilize crypto and we think about mm-hmm. games that have played to earn economies that have a clear economic loop, I think at the end of the day, they, they many of them resemble free-to-play games also, as both are at the end of the day a two-sided marketplace. One of them is a marketplace between the players and the developer, and then the other one, the player-to-earn one, is a marketplace between the players who spend and then the players who, who, who grind and earn for what they sell to, to, to the spenders. Um, here again, I would look at where where do you already see a competitive mm-hmm. competitive scene in games that also have a linear progression. Mainly looking at games like Brawl Stars and, and some other some other brawlers that have the similar kind of a progression. Um, depending on again what the audience sentiment is, I don't think it, it it has to be an issue that that the progression is very linear. Especially if let's say a big part of the team which let's say a guild would become an esports organization. You have kind of a long tail of players that do a lot of the grinding for the best players in that guild. And then they get to feel like a part of, of what, the, what that sort of top layer of the guild is doing. And they feel like they're also pulling their weight uh, into it. I'm not sure if it makes essentially the, the gameplay more fun, but it definitely, I think, makes the esports, mm-hmm. it can potentially make it more inclusive also for a wider group of people. And I think that's, that could be an interesting way to, to get your whole fandom involved, not by watching, but actually being able to play, spend time and contribute to some of the top players uh, in, your, uh, in, in, in your guild or esports team, if you will. And I think we'll get to the esports, esports mm-hmm. team slash guild discussion also later, because I think there's a lot to, lot to learn for both of those from, from each other. And I think they're going into a very similar direction also in the future. But... But that's at least one. So, so looking at what's happening in free-to-play, where these economies already make sense to, in, to some extent. Uh, and um, that's where I think we would see the initial adoption at least happening. That's really interesting. So that's, because actually that, that's, so one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is, is you know, how to add value within a game as a player, um, you know, within the, the context of play to earn, right? How can you have a lot of people make money? Um, you know, the only way that can de- that can happen is when they actually add value. And so when, you, when you're saying that, if I understand you correctly, that a lot of players who might not be super skilled at the game, but can do something within the game that actually helps the team that they're a part of succeed on the highly competitive level, that would actually be a way for them to, you know, add value and actually perhaps even earn something, right? If their team wins, there's huge prize pools that then might be, you know, the distributed among the, 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 the guild. Exactly. I mean, if let's say the guild has some kind of a liquidity mining scheme, which, which allows to reward the native token based on what your input mm-hmm. in the games are that the guild is, is, is competitive in, then there's kind of direct correlation how much work you put into it. It's, it's like, you know, the engineers and the mechanics of F1 teams. I'm, I'm not, I hope I will not the whole call be doing this um, <laughs> Formula One, but but you, you get the idea. Yeah. Uh, so so basically just broadening the participation of, of these teams other than just being a spectator. Yeah. And is then the comparison, uh, maybe Sebastian, I think I think you, you've probably thought about this a lot. Um, so now I'm talking about, um, or I want to talk about um, discovery of talents. So one of the difference I've noticed between um, you know the the teams like 
let's talk about League of Legends. So the there's a um, uh, LEC, which is like the the championship series in Europe, and you have the LCS, which is the one in, in the US. And LEC EU is way greater than NA. They get wrecked every time. And one of the reasons for that is that EU is better at fostering the, the talent um, than NA, allegedly at least. Um, and so my question is: the moment you have um, you know a, a requirement to own like specific NFTs that might become more more and more valuable. And I think there the the comparison to F1 is is again, you know, um a good one. Um how do you think around this, you know, discoverability of or discovery of talent um question, Sebastian? Yeah. So I, I think there are two parts here. For first one, by the way, I think Antoine's point about the guild model is super cool and it's super relevant mm-hmm. here. Uh I think his World of Warcraft background sort of shows out in that regard, where it's like very clearly people farming for cool items for the top players to use. I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of high-level Pokemon, where it's actually a pain in the butt to like get the exact spec Pokemon. It takes like tens, if not hundreds of hours. And I'm like, man, that ecosystem could totally use a play to earn mechanism. Cause I just really want the highest level of Pokemon mm-hmm. so you can go crush kids. Um, but I, I just, it takes so much time to get them. Uh, in, in terms of your specific question, I actually didn't think this is a broader esports question. There are far more people playing League of Legends in Europe than in North America. Mm. And so as a result, you just have better talent come out as a statistical argument. This is the same issue actually with esports, right? One of the things that I've talked to a lot with like Jens at Malta, uh, who are some a couple of the founding partners at Bitcraft who come from more esports backgrounds. I mean, Jens obviously founded the ESL. Is that like it's been very hard to force people to make something in esports, right? It's very much that it's become an organic growth where there are enough people who are watching, enough people who are playing, that the esport emerges, as opposed to the other way around. We haven't really cracked the, how do I make a game in esports ahead of time? And that causes issues from a blockchain standpoint, because before we even think about any of these games as esports or player development, they have to have a large enough community and number of players for it to occur. Now, my, my in terms of player scouting and player development with regards to NFT games or blockchain games, we're starting to see a little bit this in the guild model already with what how the scholarship program is working with a lot of these um, yield guild inspired guilds across the world. I think that's a, sort of an interesting model. W- one thing I've talked to our friends at Yield Guild about and sort of other people around the world is uh, one of my favorite sayings in poker, which is if you've if you're playing one dollar two dollar poker and you've played a million hands, and you're down $100,000, there's a chance you got unlucky, but there's like no chance you're good, right? And similarly, the, the converse tends to apply, where if, you know, if you've played you know, that many hands at $1, $2, and you're up $100,000, there's a chance you got lucky, but there's no chance you're horrendous at poker. And I think a lot of that Bayesian updating is what we're starting to see in, in a lot of scouting, right? And so player development, it's a lot less about player development in and of itself in that like the idea of like teaching people how to get better. Like that's, that stuff is easier to do. The harder part is like, hey, can do you try and discover inherent skill? And a lot of the models I've been seeing employed, especially on games like Axie and Zedrun, is more just Bayesian probabilistic updating, meaning like they take a small sample size. If you're doing really well in that sample size, the implied idea is like, eh, there's a good chance you might be amazing. There's not, not necessarily saying that you will be, but there's a chance. And so you end up giving them more and more opportunity, giving them better horses or, or better axes. Um, well, the actual way you do an axes, you give them like an entire like pool of axes, like a team of axes, mm-hmm. and then, then they are able to like, hey, can you properly read the metagame as you're playing? And that's like a really interesting skill. Mm-hmm. And so 
Uh, certainly, I think player development is happening, but that's but almost certainly, especially in games like this, the best players are in the Philippines right now because that's where the highest prob- highest number of people mm-hmm. are. And so uh, we, we're starting to see similar things. The only country that seems to like buck this trend is Korea for some inexplicable yeah. reason. Might be cultural, might be otherwise. But I mean, Europe, I think, is a great example in, in League of Legends. China is a great example. China should be crushing and they have been crushing in terms of just the sheer number of players they're pulling up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Korea being the only exception. The U.S. just does, despite the U.S. being a large country, there aren't that many people who are playing League of Legends on a day-to-day basis. And so as a result, the ecosystem has fewer, fewer talents coming mm-hmm. through. And so if I understand you correctly, um, the guild system might actually be like a good way to to already solve some of the inherent problems in in the esports scene where you know players are not discovered but here if they already are part of a team they can start proving themselves and they, they can be followed up and, and rise through the ranks so to say for sure and, and the biggest issue of course is that um, it's like the a priori constraint of like hey you actually need an esports environment with enough people to play in order to have the discovery happen and right now especially in blockchain gaming we've only seen that in a couple of games and frankly we'll probably only see that in 1v1 games we're probably not going to see a competitive environment in a 5v5 multiplayer shooter anytime soon in that ecosystem just as a sheer, as a function of the sheer number of players you need for that to be competitive 5v5s right so uh, if you think about chess uh in theory, it's a two-player game, but in practice, if it's just you and me, Nico, you'll crush me every time. Not and sure, I, man. I'll, I'll quit, <laughs> right? I'll quit immediately, right? Whereas, like, if it's the four of us, there we might be able to have a competitive scene for like a week, but then Kaleb will probably crush us every time, or Anton will crush <laughs> us every time, right? Um, and so, in, the- in practice, chess requires something like I think it was like two thousand people okay. to have enough of an elo distribution for people to have a competitive environment scene. And, and that number starts to increase exponentially as you have more and more people. So a 5v5 game probably requires like 10,000 people in the, or, or like 100,000 people to play competitively in, an, in a balanced manner. That's, that's a really interesting take. Um, I'd like to, because I mean, we're touching on a lot of like super interesting topics here. Um, I'd like to take like a step back and, and talk about the implications of, you know, blockchain technology, immutability, um, composability, um, and the implication that that has for gameplay, both like the challenges and the opportunities that are there. Um, and, and Khaled, perhaps you can, you can open this up. Like, what do you see? Maybe, maybe first we can talk about like what the challenges are. And I'm thinking like immutability as, as, as one major one, uh, for, for having a thriving competitive scene. Uh, but what others, or, or you want to, you know, touch on that one, um, are there. Uh, so are you talking about like the technical difficulties or in terms of like of design or both? Uh, yeah, mo- most mostly like technical. We we can leave that aside yeah. for this discussion. Mostly like the de- from a design perspective, right? You're using this, you know, public te- like database technology. Um, you have you know a limited number of of, of items. Um, what does this mean? Like, how, how does this make balancing or or creating a thriving competitive scene uh, more difficult? Yeah, yeah. So so that's definitely tricky because it basically it like. Uh, limits the the space that you can work with uh, within you know uh, and, mm-hmm. and i think the best way to do it is, is that you know something like how axie and how they are bred you know it's something that is organic that is randomized i think we would help a lot you know it would, it, i wouldn't go with with things that are you know tailored by a designer you know especially when it comes to esports and you're making things that could have power that could impact the esports scene it would be good to 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 like uh, basically, you know, rely on that randomness aspect. 
I think it would be much more mm. understandable for players. You know, it's like, okay, this is an OP character, but he, he got very lucky and most likely the next season it will not exist anymore. Something like that. I think this is how I would play it. Something like that. But uh, I think it definitely limits the space. It's definitely m- much more difficult to maneuver within. But I, I don't think I don't see it mm-hmm. as an impossible task. I don't see it as an impossible task, but definitely something to consider. Yeah, that's fair. It's a good, it's a good example. Anton, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, just quickly, I think it's important for game developers right now to think about what they actually want to have running on-chain. Uh, currently, I feel like hmm. maybe the most important thing you want to have running would be the assets and, and the economy that is tied to them, uh, whereas most of the other stuff will be running on, on the developer's own servers just to kind of save the load and have a, have a lot of kind of creative freedom also around what the experience looks like. Uh, so um, obviously, I think when we look at the spectrum of how much on-chain elements people have. On, on one end, you have the dark forests of the world that really want to give this fully, a full on-chain experience to people. And obviously that is catering to a, to, to a quite a narrow audience at the moment. But, but I, I think what they're doing in terms of experimenting and really sort of stretching what they can do with the tech, like for example, using, using zero knowledge proofs to, to create a kind of a on-chain fog of war, if you will. Um, which I think is on a conceptual mm-hmm. level really cool, but but I think when we're talking about large audiences and the masses, uh, I, I, I think um, it's not as important for those people, and I'm not even sure if it should be. Uh, all all of those kind. I, I think it's important that what's happen on, what happens under the hood should be running properly, uh, and it should make the experience more fun. It should make it more difficult. Uh, so um, I think there's quite a lot of freedom still, and as as long as people run a lot of the stuff that relates to UX uh, off-chain. But naturally, as, as scaling solutions become better and, and, and a lot of tooling around around UX and making it easier for developers as well and sort of having proper wallet integrations, being able to distribute through large app stores without, without issues, um, I think developers can bring more and more features also happening on-chain. But, but currently, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't see it as a major issue, given that you, a lot of stuff can be run off chain at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair, Sebastian. I see you laugh. No, I mean I was just gonna say Anton likes a reference to like the three body problem, like dark forest. I freaking love that so much. It's it's awesome. Uh, fun fact about uh, blockchain smart contracts is that I, I often use esports as an example as to why blockchain matters. Right, so um, I'm not going to say which companies because they still exist and hopefully one day they'll sponsor me again. But a bunch of companies in the in the early days of esports, uh, would you would sign a contract with them and they'd owe you money. And I remember very much being stressed that my money hadn't hit the bank account <laughs> like around this time of year. Right, mm-hmm. like it it would be like, hey, uh, I'm going to be. I'm going to be insolvent on January 1st. So you have to get me the money they owed me in June before December 31st. And I'd see it hit my bank account maybe the 29th, maybe the 30th, some of the stressful days of my career and life. Uh, and so certainly from that type of smart contract implementation, making sure sponsors pay you would be so, so nice for whatever future esports emerges in this ecosystem. Uh, but but I yeah. think I think they, uh, Khaled and Anton bring up great points, right? Like it's the, but it's again, just a function of, what type of consumer you're going after and what the population people are playing, right? A lot of the best games that we've seen so far are games like Wolf Game, which are targeted to very super hyper early adopter, hyper innovator person who wants to effectively gamble with their Ethereum or gamble with their uh, whatever token they have, right? Uh, certainly that cannot, or I would imagine won't be the game 
ecosystem will see in five years from now, right? It's very similar to the first beginning. I'm calling your experience in mobile shows is clearly where like the, the earliest best games in mobile were games like Sword and Sorcery and games like, uh, you know, uh, these like uh, that uh, tiny wings, one player experiences that were modeled to not having any type of synchronous multiplayer or even asynchronous multiplayer, because those problems were just intractable and mobile in 2010. Right. And now the top games are all synchronous multiplayer games because that problem has been effectively solved to a certain extent on mobile. Right. And similarly, I'd imagine mm-hmm. in terms of number of player, be it player, quote unquote, player liquidity, there has to be a better name, but number of players who are playing on blockchain, you will start seeing game design change from right now. There aren't that many people. So I'd imagine like a lot of the stuff that people are developing are towards these like super whales or the super early adopters, as opposed to once we have, you know, hundred million <laughs> blockchain gamers, shout out to Nika, uh, the, we'll, we'll start seeing games are built for those larger audiences. And I think this actually, I need to just quickly comment on the, on the whale thing, because I think that's a super interesting discussion into sort of, obviously the whales are also what's driving sort of mid core mobile, uh, at large and, um, Maybe this relates to a to bolder prediction if we're gonna put some of those later on in the show. But um, I, I I do think that the the whales of the future are actually the guilds, uh, and you'll be able to to kind of coordinate whale activity now with a with a bunch of people who are now able to see the end game of these games, whereas previously you only had a small subset of people who were willing to spend such as much as individuals to actually see the end game. As if we look at so the biggest mobile titles, all of the all of the live ops, all of the content is is geared towards the spending players and the ones who actually sort of bring the buck, bring the buck to the table. But I think I think guilds are an interesting way to actually democratize that and potentially also increase the amount of whales, given that whales will be these kind of cooperatives of players and not only not only individuals. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um and then you, do you see a world where you have like a handful of of guilds, you know, dominating games, like one game or even like cross games, where you know, a player like Yield Guild has like a super competitive esports team in every single blockchain uh, game, just because they're all dependent on good items and they're the one that have the player base to be able to, you know, provide for it. And assuming like a let's set, like some some sort of randomized drop rate, just the more people, the more mass you have behind you. Uh, the better the items you can get, and and the stronger your esports team. I think for some games it could be could be like that. I mean, it's um it's just a guess, but um I think it, it it's an interesting scenario. I mean, if we look at some of the biggest sport franchises, I mean they are part of baskets for larger private equity investors, and uh, and also there's a lot of private money kind of aggregating a lot of this stuff. So, so at some layer, it's very similar to to other sports as well. But in this world, it could be a mm-hmm. bit more. A bit more inclusive in terms of who is able to actually be a part owner in in some of these franchises. And so we've just had a discussion about the limitations that blockchain brings when you, you want to build uh, like a balanced game. Um, what about the 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 possibilities or the advantages that it brings or the extra dynamics that you can you can put inside? Khaled, sure, uh, you, you're thinking about Borantes a lot. What's your take here? Uh, so definitely, I think that there is some value added. Like it's if. if especially once you tie the the limitations you know it could add some dynamic into the gameplay and this is what i usually look for you know uh, uh so if if you look at like uh for example i don't know like league of legend champions let let, let, mm-hmm. let me use that rough example mm-hmm. and then we have a champion that because of some random mm-hmm. element we got like the perfect role of this champion and then 
once they lose a match, this yeah. character is gone. Let's say it's deleted. Yeah. You know, so you could imagine how this plays into into the the gameplay, you know, and the dynamics of everything. You know, so this is these are the things that interest me. These are the things that I want to see more of. You know, like let's utilize the NFT and the blockchain in a way that 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 could affect yeah. the game itself. I don't know. I don't know how a game would look where you know you you work for a character and then if you lose one match, it dies. Um, but uh, de- definitely interesting. That's a, definitely an extreme example, but like it, it just shows you, you know, just the how it is or how it could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sebastian. What do you think? I mean, I think I think these are are interesting points. I I don't know if I have as strong an opinion in this regard. Uh, it's it's like just one of those things where I certainly think that we just don't have enough data quite yet to to make strong predictions one way or the other. I, I do think that like the, like uh, like to Anton's point, the guilds are interesting and and that stuff. But uh, yeah, I just like don't have strong opinions yet. I, I think there it's it's also interesting because it feels like one of the core areas where your strength of your conviction is probably going to decide the type of direction you're going to go, which I think is interesting, right? Like if if you believe strongly in one way or the other, it's going to completely change your outlook in terms of how you implement your solutions in the next 18, 24 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, we talked about Xerox Park and, you know, just, or Dark Forest and and fully unchained games. Um, I'm very curious to see how that plays out. It's uh, It's a fascinating scene and space and um yeah it's um the potential like for that is i don't know i still don't grasp it and what kind of games will come from that anton anything you'd like to add to this um i don't know yet how it will make the core gameplay of competitive games itself more fun Mm -hmm. Uh, i think there's a there's a bunch of game designers that are a lot smarter than me that are probably going to figure that out. But I do think it can have an, as we've discussed previously or earlier, uh, I think it can have an impact on on kind of audience inclusivity, how to make them more engaged uh, in, 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 into competitive gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, because I think that there's been this ongoing meme within, within esports now for a couple of years about showing stats, how much the, the average NBA fan spends on 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 his his or her yearly hobby of, of following the sport and then the esports average esports fan only spending a couple of bucks uh, but there hasn't been any because it's not an apples to apples comparison because the economics of those those sports are very different and um uh this is something where i think this can come in i mean it's a it, it's a way to boost monetization uh but sort of not at the expense of the fan i think i think it's it's just a way for them to get a bit more vested mm-hmm. into what's happening yeah i agree i've always said one of the cool things about and even cosmetic nfts right if i could own the faker what was that z skin my life would probably be complete um and so you know th- th- that's i think one of the cool Im- potential implementations yeah and, and i mean who who wouldn't want to own the the skin that XP used when he did the oh, backdoor man. Uh, against against Ocelot. So yeah, so exactly. <laughs> I think I think that skin would would go for for something in the auction anyway. Absolutely. Oh yeah, because Carlos would bid on that for sure. Hundred percent, Carlos would bid on that just to troll everyone. Yeah, else. yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, cool. Um, all right. Um, yeah. Now we get to the point where I'd like to have. Um, that that's what I'm I'm here for. Is just I like to hear bold predictions. Um, so um, I've uh, I've asked. My panelists to prepare one, and uh, yeah, let's uh, let's hear it. Kale, you can uh, you can go first. Yeah, so I had a point, but I think Anton was go- is going to touch on that subject, you know, because Anton was was talking about the guilds and how 
uh, they would play a big role, you know, coming forward, especially in the esports scene. Uh, so I'm going to change my point. Uh, I'm going to say that I would expect to have or to see an esport game, you know, that that is built on the blockchain to have NFTs that have limited useful life, that have NFTs that depend on random elements, you know, and and that would add to the meta layer, you know, on top of just the gameplay where we would be, we would see like purchases, seasonal activity, and things like that. That that would be my my prediction. I think that's a good prediction. I um I recently like thought that I mean in the future esports teams are gonna have to like need asset managers. You know, that just like <laughs> trade and, and do all that stuff because they're just handling like millions worth of assets uh, within the organization. Uh, yeah, I think um, in general, like games, like because of crypto, just economic things are, are coming into games like always, like everywhere. And and and, and, um, and I don't think that's going to it's going to stop or, or die down. So uh, yeah, it's good. It's a good bold prediction. Antonio, what's yours? So about the point that. Khaled was also touching, I do think that esports, professional esports teams and guilds are converging at some point, or at least they will learn something from each other hmm. and kind of go to a very, very similar direction. As you, as you just pointed out, guilds will have asset managers, they will have people who need to figure out kind of what the, what the salaries are between the pro players, the contributors in the guild or the esports team, etc. These guilds and teams will have lobbyists who constantly lobby to the game developers about how the game should be balanced, what the metagame should look like. It, it's going to get a lot more political, but the result is people will just generally a lot more vested into this. It just becomes yeah. a bigger part of, of, of people's life. Yeah. And they'll probably have talent scouts, but also game scouts, because if you can manage to get a position, a strong position in an emerging game that you think has a lot of potential, that might give you, you know, advantage in the long term because you can pick up, you know, the land and all the, the origin axes and all that stuff. Uh, it's, a, it's a good one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Sebastian. You can also respond to the other uh, bold predictions, feel free. Yeah, I mean I think I think predictions are interesting. Um I I would say in, at least in the next and this is sort of me being repetitive, but I, I think it's really hard to predict five years out. I think it's much easier to predict two. I think my bold prediction is that we just won't see any multiplayer beyond 1v1 game in um, competitive blockchain esports anytime in the next two years. Um, I think certainly there's a lot of people working on other type of game genres. I just like, don't think that we have enough players quite yet in order to support game genres that aren't 1v1. And so uh, I think we'll see Axie actually stay pretty much the like, the um, go-to group. I'm really curious to see if Axie actually moves towards creating speed ties being random, right? So the way they t handle it in Pokemon, for example, to use the best example, if you have a speed tie, you flip a coin. <laughs> you flip a coin and and the RNG lets you know who goes first or whatnot. I think that one change will probably be pretty monumentally valuable for the Axie environment. Um, in terms of its competitive landscape. But yeah, my, my entire thing is that we're only going to see 1v1 esports in, in blockchain for the next two years. And would you consider Axie to have a sufficiently large player base, let's say if they introduce, you know, double battles where it's 2v2 and or even 5v5 in a way where, I mean, they're, I don't know, two, two and a half million DAUs, would that be a uh, sufficiently large player base? Oh, man, that's a great question. I was I was working on that math yesterday and I fell asleep. So I do not have a good answer for you right now, to be honest with you. I like literally was, that was literally the math problem I was working on last night before around when I was messaging you, Nico. Uh, I think they do. 
Like they have about, I, I believe, like 1.4 million DAU right now. And so the question is like, how many of them are trying to be competitive and competitive at the highest level? Yeah. Um, perhaps. I, I think 2v2 is probably likely. I mean, I, I think for for sure the map seems to play out that 1v1, you only need like a few thousand concurrent in order for it to be a really thriving environment. But it seems to be the case that for, um, for more, you probably need a few more people. And so... Uh, Check back out. Check back with me on that, and like maybe in the new year, <laughs> I'll hopefully be done with the math by then. Okay, and and I hope you can also provide a formula because I think that's that's really interesting to have like a formula where we can you know put in some parameters and then. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's the hope as well. Again, uh, I I'm I'm historically someone who is not the best at math. I just Monte Carlo everything and hope for the yeah. best. Uh, and so I got to work with people who are far more rigorous than I am for this, for this regard. Look, in complex systems, that's actually the way to go, you know? Just just try. <laughs> yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and finally, I want to I touch on your, your comment where you said, you know, that speed dies. Um, how do you see the dynamics in, in Axie um, when, you know, because right now speed is like between, I don't, I don't know exactly, it's like between zero and a thousand, let's say, right? But what if you make it between zero and one billion, where the chance of you having a speed tie are actually like way diminished and, and just the ranges get, 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 I mean, larger, um, there's more possibilities. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? Well, so one, I've talked to a few of the Riot League of Legends game designers in terms of the balance team before, and and they basically said the new rune system is actually a lot easier than the old rune system to balance. The old rune system just had too much granularity in terms of what people can choose. There's only like three to the sixth power or ninth power in terms of optionality, in terms of current League of Legends champion design. And, and they really balanced their game uh, with a certain number of quote-unquote meta characters who have meta builds, and that's so much easier to balance than uh, having a thousand or a million different options. And so wh what I imagine we'll see is we see this type of granularity in Pokemon and World of Warcraft, where it gives you enough green space and white space for people to experiment with different builds and see if, how they push up against other groups. We'll probably see something similar like that if they have that much more granularity. My expectation is that most people aren't the greatest balanced game developers in the world, uh, in, in part because that's just such a hard, hard task. Uh, I'd imagine you start with a smaller um, concourse of things and then you you expand upon that. But if you did have, like for example, one to a million in terms of speed, uh, almost certainly what you end up seeing is you'll see a lot of one and a lot of a million. And you won't really see much granularity between one and a million. Because um, like being 900,000 in speed is like a bad allocation versus being a million at speed or being because like one in 900,000 lose to a million at the same rate. And so what you probably will see like it's like a bifurcation of that and you'll see bimodal distributions in terms of like, oh, you'll see a lot of speed one axes that have a lot of health, a million health and one one speed. And you'll see a bunch of like million speed axes and then you'll still run into the same tie issue. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And this guy, he's not good at math. He says. Um, anyway, um, yeah. Let, let's 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 round this up before we end. Um, where can people reach you guys if they want to, you know, tweet that they fully and fundamentally disagree with what you said on the pod? Khaled, where can be, can people find you? Uh, so I'm mostly on Twitter. You know, feel free to contact me uh, about any topic related to blockchain gaming. Always, always happy to talk about economies, gaming like uh, blockchain gaming and anything games, basically. Nice. How about you, Anton? So, so I, I think I put to most most social medias how they can reach me either by email or pinging me somewhere. I think Twitter is also probably the easiest one uh, where I check check all of my DMs. Uh, it's you can find me at at Retri Paladin. 
which is uh, a tag that I hope I'm not going to change. Uh, and um, even though in light of, I'm not a big fan of what Blizzard is doing at the moment, but it's still a, still a testament to my competitive gaming career. Yeah. Hey, you, Sebastian. Well, first of all, you can find Khaled at K A L R O U M I underscore. Just just so that anyone who's listening and doesn't want to go look up the the notes can find it. Um, but you can find me at Set Park. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, gentlemen, uh, Khaled, Anton, and Sebastian, thank you so much for for coming on the pod, sharing your knowledge. I really enjoyed this, um, and I feel like you know over the next months and years we'll probably can like have to reopen this discussion, and then uh, with everything that changes and maybe you know on-chain gaming becomes a thing, and then it completely changes the dynamics, and we'll probably see guilds dominate the space. At least that's what I hope. I think it's more cool if if players can have an impact on on the outcomes of of games or or on the competitive scene. Um, so yeah. Listener, thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, feel free to share it with your friends. Um, and um, with that, the Metacast is out and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.